This morning, numbers confirming what we see and feel all around us. The American Psychological Association finding nearly 80 percent of adults say the coronavirus is a significant source of stress in their life. Next tonight, the emotional toll the pandemic is taking on American children. Parents noticing a significant rise in depression and anxiety. We're in the midst of a mental health epidemic right now, and I think it's only going to get worse. You don't think the worst is over? No, not at all. No, I think in a way the worst is yet to come. There is a hidden epidemic stemming directly from the first pandemic, a psychological pandemic. Illness, loss of loved ones, social isolation, economic insecurity, disruption of routine have taken an enormous toll on mental health. Depression, anxiety, suicides, and drug use are all on the rise. All this making mental health services more important than ever. But how do you deliver mental health services during COVID-19? It has led us to revision mental health and substance use treatment. I'm Melissa Bailey principal at Bowling Business Strategies. I spent the better part of 20 years working for the state of Vermont, primarily in mental health. Mental health is something we all have, just like physical health, and it's on a continuum. I'm Raquel Maison-Jeffers, program officer at the Nicholson Foundation and a self-professed advocate. And by that, I mean someone who has worked inside state government, holding a deep commitment to transforming health systems to improve outcomes for more people. Welcome to State of Mind, where two former state leaders explore new ways to a better mental health system. We are ready to stop tinkering at the edges of change. On today's episode of State of Mind, The Power of Employers, we'll explore the unique opportunity employers have to improve the mental health of the 158 million working U.S. adults who spend more time engaged in work than in any other activity apart from sleeping. Mental health is a leading cause of lost work days. For employers, the impact of mental health conditions is substantial and extends beyond the cost of care to include lost productivity, absenteeism, and presenteeism. But mental health conditions are treatable and employers can be part of the solution by purchasing health insurance benefits for employees with proven results. Today, our guest is Dr. Andy Keller, a psychologist with more than 20 years of experience in behavioral health policy. He is the CEO of the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, a key partner in the path forward for mental health and substance use. Welcome, Dr. Keller. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. How has the epidemic affected employees' mental health? From where you sit, what should employers be thinking about to best support them? Well, I mean, I think it's affected their mental health the way it's affected all of our mental health. Uh, right now, reported rates of depression tracked by the CDC are four times higher than they were pre-pandemic. Uh, the number of people seriously considering suicide has doubled. Um, and, you know, employees are not immune to some other things like overdose deaths. And, you know, last year, overdose deaths jumped by a third, 33% higher, almost 90,000 people. So when you think about em employer benefits, you got to think beyond the actual employee to the family. 
And so we're talking about spouses, uh, domestic partners, dependents, children, foster children. So, you know, the footprint of employers, uh, which are the, you know, the majority of uh, that's where folks get their insurance and their medical coverage today, uh, really impacts a lot of folks. And just the partners in the path forward impact uh, the care of about 40 million Americans. Wow. So, so talking about, you know, the impact of mental health and substance abuse on all these people, um, can you explain what the path forward is and what inspired you and Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute to join this movement? Yeah, you know, so we've, this idea of parity is, is one that's talked a lot about in the mental health industry and in the addiction industry is that we don't, we haven't had some, you know, equal benefits. Like our benefits are, you know, well, the, you go see someone else or you have different co-pays or you have, you know, we're only going to let you have 10 visits. So those Congress uh, and, and uh, actually under President Bush and then President Obama took it further, really said that's illegal. We can't do that anymore. So what's called quantitative limits um, were abolished, but so were non-quantitative limits. So non-quantitative limits are when you think you have coverage and you go to call someone in your network and you call 10 people and none of them are accepting people. And we call those ghost networks. They have you know, dead people are in these networks. And no one's policing this because you know, mental health coverage is only about 5% of overall medical spending. It drives a ton of other spending. But um, because of that, nobody's really paid that close of attention. So what we wanted to do was to raise the, the, the awareness there. And so we worked on legislation in 2017 with other states doing similar things to put more pressure on insurers. But we realized that insurers, they're just the middle people. They don't make the decision. The purchaser, uh, particularly self-insured corporations, drive a lot of care. So we thought, let's, let's try to go upstream and talk to them. And the good news is they told us that they wanted to partner with that we this is a business led so like southwest airlines here in texas they want better depression care for their pilots and their employees uh but they haven't been able to get it so we wanted they, they wanted a partner to help them get it and that's that's what gave rise to this yeah so so specifically what is the business case for employers to invest in the mental health of their employees well, I think the two of you described it very well in your introduction. I mean, it's it's a huge impact. So the most recent year we have data on is it's, it's a little dated. So I think these numbers are low because things have gotten worse and costs have gone up. But it's over $200 billion a year just from depression, the impacts on productivity. So a lot of times we talk about depression because that's something most people know someone who has depression or they've themselves had depression. Um, but, you know, anxiety can be difficult as well. A lot of workplace conflict. Uh, begins in anxiety, uh, and then increasingly overdose and addiction, which adds about another hundred million. So businesses are suffering, and it's not really just from their health costs. It's really from what y'all said that people just you don't work very well, and that's what you know presenteeism. You show up, you're there, but you're you're just staring at your computer because you you're depressed or you're too anxious or whatever. So or you're thinking about your family member who you know you're worried may may die from suicide that day. You're not going to be super productive. So, so companies know this. And I think the pandemic just, just put that, like amplified it. All of us were like, oh my gosh, like our mental health can change abruptly. And so I think, I think that's the, so there's a, there's a bottom line business case, but there's also just this felt need. I mean, you can hear it in the urgency of these CEOs. They're like, I need to help my people. I don't want to lose another person in my company to suicide. So that's, I think that's the urgency. 
Right. And, and just thinking about mental health on this continuum of, you know, we all have mental health and some days it's better than others. And some days it creates a real impactful um, point in our lives that we need to seek uh, additional supports or help. So can you talk a little bit about the strategies that um, Path Forward is promoting and why you selected them? Yeah. And what you just isolated there is a really important, it's a good thing, but it's also a complicated thing because mental health is, we all have mental health, right? A lot of times employers think, oh, well, we'll just do an educational thing around depression because like that should help, right? Or we'll use an EAP. And, And one thing we say to employers a lot is when was the last time you sent someone with cancer to an EAP to get their cancer treatment? So an EAP can be helpful, for, you know, stresses, you're, you know, you may have some practical needs, but they don't provide medical treatment. And these are medical conditions that we actually have treatments that can help two thirds of people get better. But right now only 6% get better because we're so, what we do, the big disconnect is we make people go to a therapist. We don't do what they do for my heart disease, which is they didn't tell me to go see a cardiologist. My primary care doctor harangues me about my cholesterol every time I go in. In fact, I, I don't even like going in, um, and but it makes me well behaved, relatively better behaved in between visits. And so that's the idea here is move it to primary care. So we basically, and they're right now, every insurance company in America in the last two years has shifted to where they will pay for primary care interventions in uh, mental health in primary care and addiction. It's called collaborative care. The other thing we want them to do is to be forced to measure symptoms because over 80% of mental health clinicians do not measure symptoms. And I mean, we were taught this, like in the nineties, I was told, don't, don't help them with their symptoms too quickly because they may lose the motivation to make deep change. And it's like, I mean, it was such a bad thing for us to be taught because we, people don't need to have more suffering. They'll be, they'll have plenty of opportunities in life to be motivated to change. Let's try to help them not die and help them be able to sleep and be able to be productive at work. So, I mean, and and we're not trying to medicalize per se, we're just trying to make that an option. I mean, there's a lot of lifestyle and other choices people can make, just like I do for my heart disease risk. Like I'm not taking the statin, but the fact that my doctor bothers me about this on a regular basis is making me healthier. So that's that's kind of the idea. So we want them to insist, we, we give them a checklist so that when they purchase insurance, they can make sure that their third-party administrator for their insurance checks these off and is actually knows they're paying attention. And then they have to report data on it. So there's like, a, there's enforcement. Great, Great. thank you. So that's so interesting. I mean, the, the, I think we're at a tipping point where we actually know what works, right? So the field has real evidence about ways to deliver mental health and substance use services that are effective and are very effective as, as effective or in many times more effective than uh, other uh, than treatments for other physical conditions. So what, what do you think is slowing down the widespread adoption of some of these evidence-based practices. First of all, can I just tell you how much I love that you call them other physical health conditions? Because I love it when people, because people are like, well, you know, mental versus physical. Like, no, I I consider these other physical because I'm pretty sure my brain's in my head. So I love that you said that. Um, And that is one of the problems is a lot of people think there's some mystical, magical way to help brain problems that's different from other physical problems. The other thing is people think that people are actually doing a good job. Like when I tell people that 80% of therapists don't measure symptoms, they're like, they don't. They're like, yeah, they don't. Um, And then I think the third thing um, is kind of what I was saying earlier, which is that 
they think that wellness promotion, which is important, we want wellness promotion, is enough. They're like, hey, you know, we, we did a mental health first aid training. Isn't that enough? It's like, okay, so you're going to do CPR training, but you're not going to give anybody care for heart disease. You're not going to like, sometimes people need quadruple bypass surgery. I don't think your CPR training is going to help with that. So it's, I think it's just people, I think they think it's too hard. They think it's mystical, magical. And then we do a bad job too, because, you know, we undersell. So we've got this thing called the PHQ-9, which does not involve blood tests. And so we're embarrassed. Oh, we don't have blood tests. Well, it's 85% reliable to just ask people with mouth words, what's going on. And so I think sometimes we're like, oh, we're ashamed. We don't have all those, you know, biological specimens that all those other fancy doctors have. It's like, no, the arts work just as well. So we have to, I think, be more confident on our side to say our, we have solutions, we can help. Right, absolutely. So, you know, you talked a little bit about integrated care and uh, the barriers of spreading sort of the adoption of um, involving mental health and primary care. So what are some of your overarching goals of the path forward? Yeah, so we're really trying to use the market pressure to get health systems to commit to universal detection and treatment of depression, to basically say, we're going to take the, the steps to do that. And they have to understand that there's a, there's a way to get paid. I mean, they're not going to, you know, they have to get paid. I mean, I wouldn't come to work if I wasn't paid. Um, the second thing is they have to understand that, that they can do it with minimal workflow change, you know, and there are changes that have to be done to their electronic health records to collect different information, but it's really minimal. Um, and then the third thing, and this is the most important, really, I should start with this. We have to find champions and empower them within the health systems because it's the health systems that have to catch up um, to, to what employers want to purchase. That's really where we're at now. So we use the employers to get their attention um, and then we help them with, with the movement forward. And so who are your current partnering employers and how can other employers get involved to become part of the solution? Well, there's uh, thousands of employers participating right now, and we do it through um, kind of affinity organizations. So local business groups on health, um, they have an industry group called the National Alliance for Healthcare Purchasing Coalitions, which must have been a name must have been made by a committee. It's a very long name. We call them the, the National Alliance. But you can go to their website and uh, in your business group, if you have a local business group on health, they almost certainly are a participant. It's not just employers, unions government, uh, like cities, like they're basically purchasers who go out on the, who go purchase their own insurance or self-insured purchasers. So that's one group. And then the, um, the HR policy association works with very large corporations around uh, their strategies for their, their, their healthcare benefits more broadly. So those two groups really, if you're a member of either of those groups, you're in the path forward. You just didn't know it. Um, but we then have these regional groups, which you can read about on the website, um, and, uh, and then just reach out, but it, it, you should be able to go through your local business group on health. Amazing. So thank you so much, Dr. Keller. That does it for this episode. Please join us for the next episode of State of Mind. Thanks for listening.